Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. I'm Janine Dunn. And I'm Julie Cook. And you are listening to Rethinking EDU. Thanks for joining us in this episode about uh, teacher preparation programs. We are in the thick of it. We have talked with a bunch of people about teacher preparation. And I think co-hosts, you would agree that one thing has become clear. We need some work to be done across the country in terms of teacher preparation. Thank you. And <laughs> yeah, and I know um, Janine and Julie, that's something that y'all are super passionate about, have been working really hard on. And we've brought another guest here this evening, Carol Watson. Um, and Carol has been working on teacher preparation for a while herself. Um, Carol, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are, we are uh, feeling grateful to have you here. And um, Carol, I'm just going to do a little brief bio, and I want you um, then to add anything that we, you know, might have missed, and anything important of note, and um, then we'll get a, get right into our conversation. But um, Dr. Carol Watson, you are a professor of education at Kutztown University. Kutztown, for those listeners out there who don't know, is located in um, Eastern Pennsylvania in the lovely town of, is it Kutztown as well? Is the name of the town? Yes, it is. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> and it is uh, one of the public uh, universities in the state of Pennsylvania. And um, Carol, you, uh, in addition to working at Kutztown, you were honored by the Pennsylvania Association of Colleges of Teacher Education, or PACTE, as the 2018 Teacher Educator of the Year. What a cool award. Um, and you were featured in 2016 on uh, Kutztown's website as one of its difference makers. Um, and that was really identifying people who are making a true difference in education and careers and the lives of uh, Kutztown University alumni. And Carol, you um, earned your bachelor's degree from Westminster College and graduates degree degrees from West Virginia University and Virginia Tech. And I guess one question I would have just to start this off is what brought you up here to Pennsylvania? Specifically the job opening for a teacher educator at Kutztown University. Oh, um, I was most of my 23 years as a classroom teacher, which I, although I'm very proud of my doctoral degree, I am most proud of my 23 years as a classroom teacher. Yeah. Um, and that was mostly in Virginia and West Virginia. So that's why I was going to graduate school in at Virginia Tech. And when it was time for me to graduate, uh, Virginia actually had a hiring freeze in higher education. And also I was looking for a location closer to my mother and father. And they're up in Pennsylvania, and I'm originally from Pennsylvania, so that's what brought me back. That's great. What a what a great and heartwarming story for sure. And so, for those listening out there, if you're if you're unfamiliar with the Pennsylvania college system, university system, the um, Kutztown is part of this public system, and most of the universities in the system, like Kutztown, were founded as teaching universities. And um, not as in universities where people go to get taught, but universities to prepare teachers. And it's really, I, I always find it fascinating if you look at the map of all of the Pennsylvania public universities, you can kind of see them strategically located in not just, um, you know, around the major Pennsylvania cities like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, but sort of in these kind of rural little nodes um, and that's kind of where Kutztown sits. Um, and Carol, do you have any, um, you know, thoughts or reflections on Kutztown as just like a university that is really dedicated to preparing teachers? The College of Education at Kutztown used to be, it is what the university is built on. It was actually originally called, they were originally called normal schools. And that is the... Um, the heritage of Kutztown and many other universities, it has become lesser important as the field of teaching has become in the perspective of society, lesser important. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
have noticed that trend too. There are many universities in the country that were founded as normal um, schools in, in hopes of preparing teachers. It's really interesting if you think about that and from my perspective in terms of like historically how important teachers were that we were dedicating whole university spaces to them, you know, and now here we are um, 2022 and we're really even struggling to uh, retain teachers in classrooms as they exist and recruit new teachers. Um, and, and yeah. Our enrollment now is, I would say less than half of what it was seven, eight years ago. Wow. That's incredible. And, and Kutztown is a, is what I would describe as a pretty substantial producer of teachers in the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, it is mostly, Kutztown is primarily known for um, its um, college of education and the quality of teachers coming out of it. Mm, yeah, yeah. So for the enrollment to drop to that level, of course, it's not only Kutztown, it's across the, it's across the nation. Sure. But it, and enrollment dropped in colleges and universities significantly, you know, between five and 10 years ago. Uh, across the board, across all colleges, but education was by far the hardest hit. Yeah, interesting. So Carol, let's rewind 23, 25, however many 20, whatever years ago, and bring us back to um, the younger version of yourself who's thinking about being a teacher. (laughs) And um, you're so Kind, Mike, that would be 42 years ago. Uh, yeah, you mentioned 23 years in, in the classroom. And then I was like, well, maybe she can't, you know, have been out of the classroom <laughs> for that long. Any case, um, however many years ago it was, um, bring us back to that time when you were thinking about being a teacher. What were your motivations then? What were the things that you... They were, they were not to be a teacher, oh, for sure. I okay. have a very crooked, well, I have a very crooked road in general. Okay. But it's a crooked road to education as well. When I went to originally to undergrad, I was a music professor or a professor. I was a um, music major uh, in music performance. And in the four years that I was at Westminster College in Western Pennsylvania, I had five majors. And the only reason that I went into education at all, I wasn't passionate about any of them. The only reason I went into education was because my roommate was had been an elementary education major since the beginning, and she looked like she was doing cool, fun stuff, and I couldn't think of anything better to do, so I did that and graduated in it, and I did not, and here I am with a PhD in curriculum and instruction training other teachers, but it was my first year of teaching in third grade in Tucker County, West Virginia. Um, that I, my third graders came in the first day and I fell in love with them. I don't know why, but it was my first day of teaching and that I didn't want to be a teacher. I had to get a job and support myself. My parents expected that. And when my third graders came in that first day and they were mine, I fell in love with being a teacher and was a teacher ever since then. Some would argue that that seed was planted much before then, <laughs> but you just didn't uncover didn't it, it until that first day. Yeah, it was germinating down down somewhere special. Carol, when you share that story with uh, aspiring teachers, um, how does that go over? What are their what are their uh, like you know reflections after you share that? They they really appreciate that, and I do share that a lot. And I also share that my um, GPA, my um, first semester of freshman year, was a two point three, but I got a four zero in my PhD program, and that I think lets them know that just because they come in as a freshman and are struggling for multiple reasons. Um, it doesn't mean that they aren't going to be something amazing in the future. And I think that's really important to share that those of us who are at the end of our career did not start out thinking that we would be here, but it was a, it was a, we started out the same place they are. And that's a, a model for them to know that they can have the perseverance to get through it. I love that. It's so heartwarming. 
And, uh, and I'll also just share a, a quick reflection. I work with high school students as a um, college and career advisor. And um, it's, always, it's always hard for me to express to young people what it's like to learn in college and also what it's like to uncover the thing that um, you feel like you're naturally good at and all of a sudden things come a little bit easier to you when you're doing that college learning. And I think about that for me, um, my freshman year of college, I had something like a two, three as well and um, was, a, was a history major. And by the time I got to be a senior, I had figured out what I really loved about history, figured out the like kind of path that I thought that I wanted to take and that all of a sudden my grades were a 4.0 and I was like, oh, I see what was wrong before. The things that I was studying and focusing my time and energy on were things that I was like really feeling sort of ho-hum about, you know? And the same thing happened when I went to graduate school. I took some classes and got B's or whatever. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is the other thing that I should be doing because I'm really good at this. And also I'm really interested in it. So I spent a lot of time working on it. And I think that um, this story reminds me just about how important that is for teachers to really get into. Just because you might find coursework easy, you might find this path that you're taking to be um, like motivating for you, right? As you're listening to this podcast, I hope um, that it's okay because uh, that probably going is going to mean that you're going to be really awesome at being a teacher. And um, I think all of us co-hosts and Carol would say, embrace that part of your learning and your being and your understanding of who you are and your awesomeness as a teacher. All right, Julie, I've like pontificated enough here on Carol's responses, but Carol, I appreciate your, your sharing, you know, your, your quick path. Julie, let's get into um, more than nitty gritty about teachers and teacher prep. Yeah. So Carol, I wonder if you could think about like, and share with us um, your experiences with the, the kids you teach the, I say kids because they are, you know, they're, I, I call them kids too. They are kids. <laughs> 19, 20, 21, starting off in life, you know, um, what are the kind of skills that you think, uh, student teachers need today? Um, I think, uh, it might be different than when we started out. It might be the same. Uh, but I wonder if you could think about what what are what do you see the skill sets um, that they're going to need to make it past that five year mark, which we know. I, you know, I'm not sure if it's different or the same. It's certainly different from what I was given the impression when I was going through teacher education that I should have. But I think that um, some of the most important things right now are obviously because we know um, teacher persistence is not good um, and been complicated by the last two years of the pandemic. But perseverance is the number one thing in my view. And it is a mm -hmm. quality that research tells us has been, has not been nurtured in this generation. We've focused on um, positive reinforcement, which I don't mean to say is not important. It is. But we've focused on kids' self-esteem, and um, we've gone a little bit overboard as a generation as in um, uplifting kids when they fail. Um, Debbie Silver, uh, as an author, is a, has a, a couple of fantastic books on this, on perseverance and you know, the idea that when kids fail, the answer is not, oh, you should have gotten that or, you know, that's okay. You'll get it next time. It's like, huh, what are you going to do about it? And we don't say that to kids. And that's the kind of answer that fosters perseverance. And some people call it grit. And we need to do that. Actually, a lot of my students have that, but it has become clear to me that they have developed that from their own life experiences. Um, coming from the population that my students often come from is lower socioeconomic, 
blue collar, uh, first generation college students. And even for them to be there, they have acquired, they have developed some perseverance. So I think that's the main thing is perseverance. But I think also, and I, I can't think of one word to envelop, understanding of diversity, empathy, understanding of social justice, appreciation of differences, all of that rolled up, whatever the word is for all of that rolled up into one is what allow what will allow them to go out into the world, into whatever student population they may be entering and figure out how to connect with that particular population and be successful in making those students successful. Yeah. A- amen to that. So I'm wondering you know, how, what kind of experiences in college really set kids up for success then? Those, those students who are going into education or think they want to go in, into education, um, you know, they're freshmen coming in. What kinds of experiences should they have? Uh, take us through, like, what, what do you see would be the important uh, stopping points along the way so that when they hit student teaching um, in your program or when they finally get that first job, um, what 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 should they have in their back pocket? What should they have experienced? Well, I think the last word you just said is the entire answer to that. I don't think there are multiple answers to that. I mean, a good teacher education program has methods, courses, how to teach, background in theory. All of that stuff is important. You know, um, Vygotsky and <clears throat> all of that stuff is important. But the most important thing is experiences. And in my view, which is not everybody's view, I have discovered various experiences with different populations. Um, actually, a, a push now supported by some research, um, I think kind of narrow research, that is um, pushing teacher education programs, a lot of teacher education programs in Pennsylvania, toward a model of um, place them, uh, connect them with one classroom freshman year, and then keep them in that classroom and have all their field experiences back with that mentor teacher in that context throughout their, uh, and, and then keep their student teaching to that one classroom, one grade level, one person. And um, a lot of programs are going in that direction. And I'm not sure how I got in this, but I completely disagree with that. I think that whether you're in a pre-K-4 program or a 4-8 middle level program or a 7-12 secondary program. Throughout the four years, there needs to be, as Julie was inferring, multiple and repeated, carefully planned field experiences that directly relate to what kids are learning in the classroom on campus. And that is missing. It's hard to do. It's hard for programs to do but that is totally missing. Um, and a lot of their, there are often field experience, but they're disconnected from what's happening in the classroom. And I strongly believe that those field experiences throughout those four years of the program need to be in different contexts. They need rural, they need suburban, they need urban, they need low socioeconomic, high socioeconomic, um, they need racially diverse, they need racially not diverse to see what that is like. And um, that that's a hard thing to accomplish. And that goes back to one of the things that Mike was saying about how the campuses of the 14 campuses of Pashi are strategically placed throughout Pennsylvania. And some of them are like Kutztown is strategically placed so that we have access to all of those populations. That's the one of the great things about Kutztown. I can get kids in an urban, a diverse urban neighborhood, a totally white rural and upper white middle class within 30 to 45 minutes of campus. Um, that's one of the advantages of some campuses over other campuses, but that is what I think is the most important thing um, to answer Julie's question, is diverse and ongoing field experiences that are carefully planned by faculty to coordinate 
with what they're learning in their coursework. Yeah, early and often, I, I've met so many teachers, it still happens where they get to student teaching and they say, oh, <laughs> not what I meant at all. <laughs> and right you now you've already spent three and a half years and tens of thousands of dollars um, to realize that uh, you'd rather do something else. And that still happens every day in America. Yeah. And also shifting between um, levels. We have a lot of shifting. Um, I have a sophomore, a first semester sophomore children's literature class. And I send all my students out um, for eight weeks in a row to read aloud to their own middle level class. Uh, and some of them come back and say, oh, I don't think I want to teach middle level kids. <laughs> I think I'll go to pre-K four. And then we get kids going the other way too. And we get kids going from secondary down. And that's based on those early field experiences that helps them figure out. Right. Well, I imagine lately it's been difficult, but what do great partnerships between these host schools and teacher preparation programs look like? From my experience, which is not, I can only speak from my experience on that. And I do feel like I have been able to create that. I make all of the student teaching placements for our middle level program. I always have plenty of teachers. And then when one falls through, I have backups. But that has been from, um, well, this is my 17th year at Kutztown. <laughs> right. That makes a difference, those relationships that you've built. It does. That's exactly it, Julie. That's exactly it. Um, I've built relationships over all of those years. I've built trust, as have the principals with me. And I think a key to that, too, is uh, collaboration. Um, not only do I do we at the university expect that schools will take our student teachers and work with them because that is a favor that they do for us. But we also find ways, look for ways that we can do things for them so that it's a collaboration and it's a an equitable exchange of services that they're doing this favor for our students by working with them in a way that we are not able to work with them, but that we are also doing things for their school as well. For example, um, one of the things that my student club does at Kutztown, my student middle level club, is that once a year we have seventh grade day, um, which we all look forward to, but we all know is exhausting. And we have 125 seventh graders that we host on campus so that they can see what college is like. And that way we're doing something for them and they take our student teachers and we all value each other's contributions to both my students and their students. And I think that's really, really key that the relationship be equitable. Can I just ask a quick follow-up to that question, just in terms of logistics. So our, our, um, our listeners have a good idea of like the path that a student teacher or, or a teacher in a teacher in teacher preparation program at Kutztown goes through at what point does the uh, like learning teacher enter into their student teaching experience or um, if there's multiple experiences, when does the kind of first one um, enter into their learning trajectory? This is very diverse from university to university. Sure, sure. And actually very diverse from professor to professor. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I'm hopeful, hopeful that you can illuminate for us, like your approach and, and Kutztown's approach. Cause I do think if I told you about my experience, it'd probably likely be very different. <laughs> I, I would probably be horrified. Huh? I don't know about yeah. that, but it would be very different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned my approach and Kutztown's approach. Those would not be exactly the same thing. Okay. As I've said, you know, it's different from professor to professor. Um, as I've already stated, I am a very strong proponent that it is my responsibility to find appropriate, positive, effective mentor teachers and placements and school contexts to be a model for my students. There are some uh, other professors do not feel strongly about that and um, feel that it is 
more the student's responsibility to go out and find a context, a school context to complete tasks in, whereas I I am much more hands-on. So to go straight to your question, um, I will give you the example of our middle-level program, our grades four through eight program at Kutztown, which may be changing soon, but historically over the last five years, it has been that freshman year, um, they take a a kind of a general education course, and there are two hours attached to it that um, students have to go out in the field. And this is a situation where they have to go out and find their own placement. And it's a half hour in like pre-K through two, a half hour in grades two and three, and goes up through eight, kind of like a survey so that they get experience watching different different ages of students and are sure which program they want to choose. So that's freshman year. Sophomore year in our middle level program, um, first semester, fall semester, sophomore year, they have um, adolescent children's literature with me. And that's the, the one where I just mentioned I have a particular school. All of my students are in the same school. I usually have about 20, 20 to 25, and they all go to the same school. And I set them up with teachers that I know are good because every school has good teachers and bad teachers. I choose those teachers for them, make sure that those are teachers who want them in their classrooms. And um, they have that experience of eight weeks in a row reading aloud. And I encourage them to hang out for the rest of the day. And most of them do. And like talk with the teachers and stuff like that. Um, junior year, there may be a one-day thing in their diversity class that's taught by another professor um, in spring of sophomore year. So there may be a small um, experience there. Junior year, um, in the spring semester, I teach reading methods class, and I am unable schedule-wise to get them out into, um, actually into classrooms. So what I do is I have a teacher who gives them um, assessments, reading assessments, diagnostic assessments, and I bring that authentic student work back to my classroom, and I guide my students through how to individually um, diagnose what level each student is at, and then we design instruction for them and then give it to the teacher. So cool. That's so cool. (laughs) It, it, yeah, it, yeah. In um, fall of their senior year, they have what we at um, Kutztown call ProSem. We have intensive methods, it, be the methods block for everybody else. We have intensive methods classes for the first eight, the first half of the semester. In the second half of the semester, they are in a full-time, all-day, everyday shadowing of a teacher in a classroom. They don't take over the class as they would in student teaching but they teach um, lessons here and there and they kind of act as a classroom aide and do remediation and one-on-one stuff. Then in spring semester of their senior year, they have two different eight-week placements, which I make sure are different from their pro-sem placement in the fall um, where they um, take over, eventually take over teaching responsibility. Sorry, that was so long. No, I think that was super insightful. And really fascinating. I definitely did not have an experience like that. And I see directly where your philosophy of multiple different kinds of experiences with different populations and um, and how that philosophy is coming through in your approach to helping students get those really what we all know as veteran teachers is to be the most valuable things that you could do. The most valuable thing you can do is get into a classroom as soon as possible and start messing things up and learning and uh, being guided by a mentor teacher and a professor like yourself, um, because that's really where that, that learning comes in. Um, so that's really, that's really fascinating to me. And I know Janine's got some follow-up questions. So I'm going to pass the mic over to her. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about how it really is. Um, you kind of painted a picture there, Carol, of, of how you're doing things at Kutztown. And I'm just thinking in the back of my mind of how, um, you know, my own experience through teacher prep programs and my, our current experience with where, where we teach at as well in dealing with the teacher prep program and just how uh, different an experience it could be for um, people that are entering into the field of education. And yet at the same time, 
you know, like in Pennsylvania, there's still like this oversight, you know, there's competencies that, you know, all of the courses, education courses have to meet and, you know, all of this other red tape and stuff that you have to kind of, kind of get through. So it is kind of interesting to think about how, just how different the programs can be, yet they're also held to a whole lot of, you know, there's a lot of policies and like I said, the red tape that's, <laughs> that's involved there too. <laughs> Um, I'm going to kind of shift though. And, uh, you know, hopping on here, obviously the past two years basically has, has been interesting given the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic here. I'm just wondering if you feel like, you know, have things changed in, in education and teacher prep programs, you know, how has COVID-19 kind of impacted, you know, what, what you've been doing there at Kutztown? Did it impact you at all? Are you kidding? <laughs> Just, just thought I'd ask. Okay, spring spring of 2020, half my teaching load is student teachers. So like if you can't go anywhere, what does that look like in a week over spring break? Yeah, that was, I had 13 students, actually in the spring, I am three quarter time student teachers. So I had 13 student teachers assigned to the field in spring of 2020. So of course that, the end of that year looked like one thing. And again, it depended on what professor was teaching the class as to what that looked like. There was not consistency with that. I tend to be extremely grounded in practice as opposed to theory and connected to um, schools and practice. So I reached out to all 13 of my uh, mentor teachers and said, I have no idea what we're doing. I don't know what to do. I'm going to make it up as I go along. But I know that I want my student teachers to be connected with you. And I know you don't know what you're doing, but I want my kids to watch you figure it out because that's what they need to know. They need to know problem solving and how experienced teachers still struggle so that we can, again, go back to that perseverance. And so we did that. And I, I have goosebumps now. I'm such a teacher nerd. I loved it. I loved it because I didn't love it because I didn't get to see people in person, but you know, I did get to see people's faces. I have missed that since then. You see people's faces on Zoom. Um, I have students I've seen for two years that I've never seen their face. And I have a terrible time telling them apart and getting their names. So that looked like one thing for me. It looked like another thing for most of the other professors on campus who did not work with the mentor teachers that their students were assigned um, and instead just assigned a lot of like write a unit on such and such and lesson planning tasks that were not connected to real kids or real teachers. So it that particular end of 2020 depended on what the professor decided to do with it. And we were basically given carte blanche by the dean who also didn't know what to do. Who did? Nobody did. So then and and it actually either way turned out well. Because those kids were, when they graduated in May, were more prepared to start as first-year teachers in the fall, when at the time we all thought it was going to be over, and it wasn't. They were prepared to hit that year because they had experienced the trauma of the spring of 2020. And it didn't matter, I don't think, really, whether they did it the way that I did it or whether they did it the way the other way. They had um, experiences that allowed them to move forward and problem solve and figure things out. Since then, you know, there's been Zoom overload and um, I taught reading from my kitchen with the refrigerator in the back. I think that my students built different skills than the students built before the pandemic. One, one One quick story about that is that we did get on Zoom in the spring of 2020. Some schools were um, equipped so that we could near the end of the year get on Zoom. And I got on to observe one of my student teachers in fourth grade uh, for the first time that any of the kids or the cooperating teacher or the student teacher had been on Zoom. It was their first meeting. And I was on there to observe. And um, 
all of the kids were dancing and they're showing their dogs in the back because they could see themselves, you know, but it's the first time they could see themselves and they could see everybody else. And the teacher's trying to get them together. And um, one of the boys, as we know, kids know more about technology than we do. So fourth grade, it took him about two minutes to figure out how to change his name down in the corner of the, the Zoom screen. And so he changed his name to Butthead. And um, yeah, probably not your smartest fourth grader to choose that name to change it to. But we had a big discussion in our next student teaching seminar because my student teachers were mostly concerned about not learning, not having the opportunity to learn classroom management. There's some classroom management. They were learning classroom management, but in a different context. And how important is it now, two years later, for my aspiring teachers to know how to do classroom management online? So that's just one example of, I don't think they learned less, they learned different stuff. And sure, there, was whole, there were holes in what they learned to manage a classroom in person. They didn't get an opportunity to do that, but they learned some skills that are so useful in today's um, context. And we know Zoom is not going away. Hopefully it diminishes, but it's not going away. And um, some people unfortunately are going to Zoom snow days. I think they learn to be flexible and how important is that for teachers? So I think things were different. I think they were a lot more stressful. I do have a lot more stress and anxiety in my students. I had a male student teacher crying in my office this afternoon, um, and, and that's not unusual. So the stress and anxiety is probably the biggest change, Janine, that I would say, but that's the same for everybody. Doesn't make it okay, but I, the learning continued. It shifted and adjusted, um, but the stress and anxiety is the biggest thing. Uh, and the one last thing I would like to say on that is that there's a lot of research out there in the last two years since the pandemic, and I have a student doing some undergraduate research right now about the damage that 100% online teaching or too much technology is doing to kids. It's actually affecting brains and the way that brains work not to mention socio-emotional issues, um, lack of ability to know how to collaborate and socialize. A lot of this came up this year when kids went back to school. And so I think that's a huge change. And we've tried to address that at the teacher education level to prepare teachers to be able to deal with that. But I don't know how to deal with that. So for me to teach other people how to deal with that with other people, it's going to be a process. Yeah, no, you bring up uh, some really good points. We could probably have a whole nother podcast just on that topic alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think you definitely did a great job, you know, just highlighting that, you know, I think I think the higher ed in particular, dealing you know, teacher prep programs took a really bad situation. You know, here it was, I mean, talk about timing, right? Like that this happened in the middle of March. That's right around like the spring semesters going and, you know, you got teacher placements happening and then for schools to just close. And then, you know, what do you do? You know, um, so it really, it, some people think that it like completely ruined their teach, student teaching experience. But I think, like you said, it, it really, people ended up having to think about being flexible and creative and, you know, had to learn all these new, you know, technology tools and how to teach online, which I mean, I'm sure is going to be a part of the future of education from here on out. So, I mean, I think those are definitely like good lessons to learn, although certainly learning them under uh, that sort of stress, um, you know, isn't great, but, and there's, there's ripple effects from that too. But yeah, I think there's, there's pros and cons of, of things that definitely have come out of uh, living through the pandemic and, and having to, you know, be in a teacher prep program at that particular moment in time. But so I'm wondering, you know, how do we how do we now support this next generation of teachers, especially knowing what they've already just gone through? And now uh, those those teachers that are, you know, are just getting their foot in the door um, and the ones that are coming up right now who and you think about this right now. Right. I like I have I have some students who um, you think about the past the past two years. 
Um, they're in their education program, but a lot of their education program has been online and virtual because of, of, of stuff. And, you know, where do we go next with them? How do we support them to make sure that, you know, these teachers are really prepared to go into the field of education? You know, how do we how do we avoid that, that teacher turnover within the, the first five years, like Julie had said earlier? I'm wondering what your what your thoughts are on, you know now really preparing teachers, the next generation of teachers. How do we do that? I have a kind of an unexpected answer to that. Maybe three quarters of my job right now, spring semester, is student teachers. I have 15 student teachers out there. I observed four of them today. I'm observing five of them tomorrow. I had um, practicum with all of them tonight. I think there are many keys to um, teacher persistence and we can go with the ones that we don't have any control over. I mean, the big ones, we don't have any control over. We don't have any control over um, making teacher pay what it should be. We'll never have any control over that. I teach my students up front. I just say to them, you will never be treated with respect. People will never understand what you do. Stop expecting people to, because that's where the disappointment comes when they work their butts off and I do think it's important for me to say to them, you are not going to be treated with respect by society. Everybody on the street has been to school. So they think that they know how to be teachers because they've been students. I think that one thing is for them to go in with that. And if they, and most of them, most teacher education students are already so passionate to be teachers, or they wouldn't have put up with what they've put up with to get to the point where they are. And I think they need to go in knowing that it's not going to be easy. The other thing that I think is really important is to help kids during their senior year with their job hunt. I don't think that teacher education programs, including mine, including me, I don't know enough about it. I need to learn more about it and pass that on when I'm having student teacher um, practicum, because I think that a lot of student teachers get in the wrong job. I think they get with the wrong population. And what I find in the um, very diverse placements that I described that we have in the middle level program at Kutztown is that every student teacher clicks with one population or another. And it's not just urban, suburban. There's, you know, ethnic diversity. There's ethnic non-diversity. Um, there's, you know, homogeneous. There's um, socioeconomic differences. Um, there's uh, rural, all white. There's upper middle class, all white. And kids find out, they click with one population more than the others. And by having those experiences, they know where to apply for a job. And I think that's key. If they find a population and a context where they fit and they feel comfortable, then I think that has a lot to do with whether they persevere or not. Yeah, I love what you're saying, Carol. I often talk with young teachers um, about the matchmaking that has to go on between you and the school that you want to teach at, right? Um, I just posted a tweet the other day. Someone asked, uh, you know, like, what has kept you in education for as long as you've been? And it was for, you know, people been, the tweet was kind of targeted for people who've been in education for 15 plus years, right? And I have said, number one was figuring out um, how to keep myself learning and growing, right? Number two was figuring out what my why is beyond um, it's just for the students, because I think we all get into education for the students. I think I've had to really dig down and figure out what's my deeper why, like why else am I doing this, right? Because obviously I'm doing it for students, but why else, right? And then the third is finding schools that match what I want to do in terms of my practice, in terms of the culture that I'm looking for. And that might be the like, you know, comprehensive public high school down the block from my house, or it might be where I am right now in a town of 6,500 people in the middle of the Rocky Mountains with a student population of, you know, um, somewhere between 30 and 60 total students. 
you know, and that is a good place for me, but it's not a good place for everybody. But I, I love what you're saying is that like some of that discerning about where you want to teach has got to go on right there at the end of your um, program. And just a shameless plug, Carol, in my college and career guidance hat um, that I'm going to put on right now. I wish I actually had a physical hat, but I don't have one. But I'll tell, I'll say, if you're ever looking for someone to partner with you to offer some, uh, you know, potential guidance or or point of view for your young um, aspiring teachers, let me know. I would be happy to to um, offer what I can. Carol, I want to, we're wrapping up our conversation. I want to get a couple of your final thoughts here. And these could be things that um, you've done at Kutztown or things that you've always wanted to do at Kutztown or uh, wanted to do in your personal practice. But I would just love to hear what are like one or two innovations that you would love to see in teacher prep programs. Um, and these could be things that uh, are, you know, proprietary information that we're tapping into right here. And then if anybody wants to borrow them, they can owe you royalties in the future, or they could just be, um, you know, something that you've seen and you're like, that would be some, uh, a path that I would really like to move toward. What are your thoughts? The, the first thing that comes to mind is because I'm right in the middle of teaching my um, reading methods uh, course right now, which is the one that you sort of latched onto before where I go out and get student work and have my students design instruction and send it back. Um, The program that I use for that is called Word Study by Donald Baer and Marsha Invernese. It's out of um, University of Virginia, and it's not new, but I used it in my classroom, and I will tell you that after my 23 years in the classroom, this is my 18th year as a professor. So it's been some time ago, but I have used it for all of these years, and it's been, it's a phonics, phonemic awareness. It's teacher-directed. It's not scripted, um, and that's why I like it. (laughs) So I would say that it's... um, the textbook for it is Words Their Way, and I, I have used it for decades and um, spectacular. So your suggestion for an innovation is more use of things like Words Their Way. Use of Words Their Way by teachers who create their own lessons, their own materials, not buying the publishers' videos who have grabbed onto Word Study and created stupid stuff for to bore kids that to get money out of school districts. <laughs> right, 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 right. Wait, it's okay if we're direct, right? Sure. Uh, listen, we are nothing but direct on this podcast, I would argue. I, I want to just tease out what you're saying. And I think um, you alluded to something really important is uh, there's a lot of pressure for teachers right now in the world to deliver quote unquote innovative or like transformational lessons or what have you. But what you just suggested was teachers constructing their own materials and lessons and things that feel authentic to them and are use, are most useful to them rather than just buying the plug and play kind of materials. Yeah. You know, um, Mike, that's what we teach them to do on campus. And then sure, I get yeah. really annoyed when I send them out to the school districts and they don't let them do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a different podcast, I think, altogether. <laughs> but I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more. I think the most interesting, useful stuff that I've ever done as a teacher has just come from like me sitting in my classroom thinking, what's really going to engage my students? How am I going to be able to, to encourage them to learn and do so in a way that feels um, right for the students I have right in front of me? you know, which, which is different all the time. Um, And especially when we're talking about uh, growing, living humans, young people um, are soaking in the, their life experiences and information and growing literally in front of our eyes. So doing that kind of reflective work on an ongoing basis, I would argue is also quite important. Um, 
Carol, what is what is something you're working on right now? Uh, what's something that um, you know you're trying to uh, bring to Kutztown to bring to your practice? We'd love to hear that. Well, I I think I'll steer away from the negative here. Okay. <laughs> and mention something that I have been doing for years and I'm trying to continue to do that I think really benefits kids a lot. And again, like Julie said, I'm calling my students kids. Um, I do a lot of um, outside of coursework, um, undergrad research with undergraduate students where um, they express an interest. It kind of got started, you know, 15 years ago when I mentioned some research in class and I have my kids read research articles because I don't want to think, I don't want them to think I'm making up stuff that, you know, there's actually been research done on it. Um, and a couple of them asked me about it and I talked about, you know, raw data and analyzing and, you know, that kind of stuff. And one of them came back from a placement one time and, and said, Carol, there's, there's a whole pile of student writing that's raw data that we need to analyze it. And I'm like, okay, you know, bring it in, ask the principal, bring it in. And he brought it in the next week. And so then, you know, I had to do it. And so that turned into um, a couple of independent studies and a group of three kids. And I took them through the research process. And um, long story short, we published in a scholarly journal. So cool. <laughs> and so cool. Other kids saw that, and so I've had a couple of groups of kids ever since then who see their upperclassmen do that, and so they present at um, conferences, and I've had, I think, five of my undergraduate students win um, Shambliss Research Awards, which is a, the highest award you can get at Kutztown for their undergraduate research. And we've had, I think, four or five scholarly articles published out of collaborations that I've done with undergraduate um, students that I think is does amazing things for them. It expands them, sets them up for graduate school. It gets them all excited. It gives them a a perspective that is balanced because they're not allowed to, they have to have an, um, an outside, they can't be passionate about something. If you're a researcher, you can't go in trying to prove something. You have to go in asking a question. Yeah, I love it. That's a really great opportunity. And something that I wish I would have been able to do as an undergrad is engage in some undergraduate research. So I'm so glad you're providing students a pathway to be able to uh, make that happen. Carol, we're nearing the end of our conversation, as I mentioned earlier, and before we get out of here, I want to give us a chance to reflect a little bit about this conversation and uh, what it's making us rethink about education. Julie's been there quietly and uh, contemplatively staring into the Zoom box, thinking, clapping occasionally. <laughs> Um, oh, that's true. <laughs> and I'm wondering, Julie, what's coming up for you as you think about this conversation? Well, I like, uh, first of all, Carol's undergraduate research uh, should be published as a research article because <laughs> it can work. It's fantastic. I, I love that idea. And I don't see that everywhere. So that that's phenomenal. Um, I'm also kind of intrigued by this idea that um, you know, you have all these experiences planned for the students from here um, and wondering if it can be that two way street, like bringing the student writing into the programs. But I wonder if there could be even more collaboration between schools and um, universities, colleges, uh, where you can almost even have like an artist in residence sort of program where teachers come in and be guest presenters and um, really help, you know, welcome these young people into the profession. Um, I, I think that would be one idea um, that, because every time I ask for a guest speaker from one of my colleagues, like, hey, we're doing this thing, could you come in and, you know, they always say yes. Teachers are super generous. Um, they always want, they're teachers. <laughs> so, um, and they always want to share. Um, so that's, that's really what it's making me think of. How can we even um, encourage and even facilitate this kind of collaboration between university teacher preparation programs, schools, uh, teacher candidates, and mentor teachers. 
And then I guess if I could just add one more thing is how can we support those mentor teachers as a mentor teacher? <laughs> you know, what are the skills that we really need to have? Um, you know, Carol has spent years and years and years really crafting these relationships and building and um, how do we make sure that the mentor teachers, you know, have what they need to be successful, um, welcoming people into their classroom? Because a lot of times, just like student teachers recreate the teach the, the learning experiences that they're familiar with, um, mentor teachers might, from what I've seen, also recreate what they did as a, a student teacher. And, and really, there are so many ways you can welcome a teacher, a student teacher into your classroom. So those are the, some of the things that a lot of other things too, but I'll leave it at that for right now. Thanks, Julie. That's awesome. Janine, what's on your mind? Well, I think uh, Carol highlighted this idea of, you know, being persistent and persevering um, throughout our conversation here. And that got me thinking about a lot of different things, really, and how this moment in time, right? we've been dealing with a stressful situation. The pandemic has brought about, you know, all sorts of challenges. Um, and I think, you know, going two years into it now, though, I'm starting to worry, and I'm probably going to sound a little insensitive with this, but uh, I'm starting to worry that some people are now getting stuck in that, you know, you ask them how they're doing, they're like, oh, I'm tired, or I, you know, oh, things are so hard, or, uh, 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 you know, I don't know. Um, and like, they're not pushing through anymore. I think we, I think there seemed to be like, there seemed to, now it seems like the, it's come along where it's like, okay, we're all, we're all about like the social emotional learning and we're concerned about everybody's mental health and which I do think is important. I'm not knocking that. Don't get me wrong. But at some point, like, where do we, where do we start to say like, all right, we have to build that resiliency back. And we need to say like, come on people, we need to persevere. We need to, we need to problem solve. We need to push through. We need to, you know, look for brighter days ahead. We need to smile at each other and say that, you know, Hey, I'm doing great today. And, you know, recognize that my attitude is contagious. So I want to make sure that I'm putting out there, you know, good into the world and not being stuck in this, this rut. Um, I don't know. I just, it's that, that you're just that, that word, you know, perseverance, persistence, resiliency, it's all kind of like swirling around in my head right now. And just, I kind of feel like we're, we're like at this point where, you know, are we going to continue to go down this path of like, I can't do it, or I'm not, I'm not feeling up to it or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, when are we going to start? To, let's have the pep talks. I want to see some pep talks coming through and people saying like, you can do it. We're going to do it. Things are getting better. Let's look on the bright side. Let's start doing some things. Um, and let's, let's start getting back to some normalcy. But um, anyway, those are some things that are swirling in my head and I probably sound really insensitive. And I'm sorry. I do think that mental health is important just for the record. <laughs> I don't think you sound insensitive at all, Janine. And I would, I'm going to, jump in and jump back for one more plug that I said before. Um, Debbie Silver. Everybody should Google Debbie Silver and her books about positivity and um, choosing optimism. And all kids are unique and different. And um, she has some amazing um, things on that as well as, and she is, um, She's good for all levels, but targets middle level. I love that. Choosing optimism. Yes. Yeah, that's that's great. I'll drop a link to um, Debbie's book, Deliberate Optimism, and a couple of her other books in the show notes, if you all want to check those out. Um, Carol, right before uh, I invite you to reflect, I'll just share a couple thoughts. I think this conversation is reminding me of the importance of um, experiential learning and uh, we talked with a couple of our other guests about the importance of experiences and how those play into what student teaching and learning to be a high quality teacher are really all about. Um, and I, I'm just brought back to that thought that the most valuable things I've ever done as a teacher are gotten in front of classrooms and messed things up and figured out how to solve them and dealt with you know, um, classroom management issues on a real level. Um, what I love, Carol, is your 
emphasis on, on experiences has also shown me that um, those things are possible even when you're in a um, more traditional teacher prep program like Kutztowns and that it takes some thoughtfulness on the, on the part of professors, but you can really engage um, young aspiring teachers in um, experiences that will allow them to not only like learn and grow, but also um, have some eye-opening moments. Some moments where they like, where they can say, oh, that teacher is so different from a teacher that I had when I was in middle school. That's really cool. I think I want to emulate some of my practice around them. Um, and as many of those experiences that we can possibly provide young people as they're working toward becoming a teacher, I think is super important ways that they can practice and ways that they can, you know, diagnose things and come up with solutions, I think is really critical. So I appreciate you bringing up those things in our conversation. Before we get into our plugs, Carol, what are your reflections on uh, on this, our time together? Uh, not anything specific, just some really, what a great conversation. I appreciate all the different uh, perspectives and um, I just thank you guys for doing this and hope it gets out to a lot of people. Great conversation. We do too. And it's been great to have you here for certain. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we'll drop um, some links to Debbie Silver's Deliberate Optimism, a couple of her other works. We'll also drop a link to Words Their Way um, in our show notes. Carol, what are some other things that you would like to plug here? Anything good that you're listening to or reading these days? Oh, gosh, I don't have time to read during the semester. <laughs> um, sure. I will say, enough. though, um, that my top of my reading list for spring break, which is next week, is um, um, Robin DeAngelis' book, um, White Fragility. So that is more in the area of um, social justice, which is also an, another um, interest of mine. And it's a book written by a white woman about why white people have a difficult time, why it makes them uncomfortable to talk about race and the kinds of issues that it brings up. So that I've had some experiences that relate to that and that book was recommended to me by somebody and I've started it. It looks like an amazing, a different perspective on the issue. For sure, for sure. I uh, read White Fragility a while back now. Did you? Have and um, really loved it. And so mm-hmm. lots to think about. I think um, yeah. Robin D'Angelo writes in a way that is important to kind of sit back and reflect and grapple with your own biases and your own experiences. So I hope you enjoy it. If you want to, um, you know, chat sometime later about that um i'd be happy to do so but i want to get over to julie who brought a plug what you what you want to plug tonight julie well i went to a conference and jen court was a dynamic speaker and she uh has written a book recently uh called help us begin um strategies and mindsets for meaningful conversations with kids especially when you are challenged by the topic uh so how to facilitate conversations that might be sticky or tricky with kids. Um, So fantastic uh, read and um, hope you check it out. Cool, love it. Janine, what do you want to plug? All right, it's gonna seem a little cheesy, but I'm plugging a website. It's it's, uh, fieldtrip.com slash PA if you're living in PA. Um, It's a very simple website that lists like all these great places that you could go for field work experiences or field trips, whatever you want to call them. Um, uh, and I just want to encourage people that to, to start getting out into the world, take your students out, um, you know, get, let's start, let's start having some normalcy. And, um, you know, we can do a whole nother podcast on how, um, getting kids out of the classroom and to be able to experience the world is the great equalizer and talk about equity in that sense. But anyway, fieldtrip.com slash PA gives you some great suggestions for where you could take kids. There's a lot of free suggestions on there, which is perfect. 
we love free, of course. Um, and fieldtrip.com, if y'all get a chance to go, it's really, uh, like Janine mentioned, super simple. But what I love about it is that if you are not in the states that are featured on fieldtrip.com, which is admittedly a limited uh, collection of mid-Atlantic and northeast states, y'all can develop this with your students. It's a really cool way to examine your locality and um, think about what are the cool places I would love to visit in my area and how how can I yeah how can I make it with my students it would be really neat my favorite spot on here is probably um, the mushroom museum in Kennett Square uh, in Pennsylvania um, if you haven't been to Kennett Square Pennsylvania you're listening to this podcast just bring your uh, mask not because it's full of COVID but because it smells like um, feces <laughs> from the mushroom. <laughs> oh, sign me up. Okay, yeah. great. <laughs> it is a wonderful place to visit and it's got some, uh, it's, it is a really lovely town. Well, Dr. Carol Watson, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Rethinking EDU. We appreciate your time with us and listeners. If you're out there, share our podcast with a friend. We hope that you found this conversation worthwhile. And as always, keep rethinking EDU. Thanks.